For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. And in our latest readout video from our Wednesday Wake Up email newsletter, I want to talk about the energy crisis again. I wish there were nothing to discuss, but unfortunately there is, and so it's dangerous to see the extent to which it's pushed aside in the daily or even hourly news cycle and in the vulgar squabbles on social media. And it's also alarming to witness the human capacity to approach such a crisis, make a calm assessment of the situation, and then suggest ways to make it a lot worse. Thus, the New York Times chortles, quote, California to ban the sale of new gasoline cars. The decision to take effect by 2035 will very likely speed a wider transition to electric vehicles because many other states follow California's standards, end quote. Well, yeah, that, or a wider transition to shopping for cars outside California, or keeping the old beater going because the Golden State electric grid can't even cope with current demand. But never mind. The governor gets an inspiration to throw away what works for what sounds good and abracadabra. You get what sounds good instead of what works. Just as here in Canada, Justin Trudeau says there's no business case for exports of liquid natural gas to Europe, presumably because he, Gavin Newsom, Barack Obama, Olaf Scholz and that crowd have done everything possible to stifle the hydrocarbon industry and destroy any business case for developing it. So, how will Germans keep warm once they discover that the glow of green purity doesn't actually heat the house? Who knows? Now, on the California electric car front, NBC allowed that, quote, there are still some wrinkles to iron out, but regulators hope the move will encourage more drivers to buy battery electric and hydrogen electric vehicles, end quote. Oh, so hope is the plan? No, not even that, because among the wrinkles is that, quote, drivers will still be able to operate previously owned gasoline-powered vehicles as well as buy used gas-powered vehicles, end quote. Meanwhile, even a New York Times columnist observed that, quote, I don't think many Americans appreciate just how tense and tenuous, how very touch-and-go the energy situation in Europe is right now, end quote. Including an EU request that, quote, member states reduce gas consumption by 15%, end quote, which shows just how much they care or know about the lives of ordinary people. Nor is there much light at the end of the channel, where Britain's Conservative Party decided to celebrate a historic breakthrough in the working-class Midlands by setting energy bills on fire and with it their own hair, specifically Boris Johnson's unruly massive tinder. And now the Labour Party's charged them with calls to freeze energy prices, presumably because price controls worked so well in the 1970s. And throughout history, going back to Diocletian's famously failed edict on maximum prices back in 301 AD. So naturally, Guardian columnist Andy Beckett loves the idea, calling it a political and a policy winner. Now, to be fair, Britain's former Labour Party leader and Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, managed to think of a far worse idea. As The Guardian noted enthusiastically, quote, Gordon Brown says energy firms unable to offer lower bills should be temporarily renationalized, end quote. Yeah, temporarily. Just until the disastrous shortage caused by bad policy is fixed by worse policy. As for Canada and natural gas, Tristan Hopper lamented in the National Post that, quote, it could well represent one of the biggest missed opportunities in Canadian history. An embattled Europe is clamoring for natural gas, and one of the world's biggest producers of the stuff can't sell it to them, end quote. He calculated that, quote, at current prices, even just one Canadian port exporting liquid natural gas could be adding nine figures to the Canadian GDP each day, end quote, as well as poking Vladimir Putin in the eye. Alas, Hopper wrote, quote, on both fronts, Ottawa appears content to watch from the sidelines, end quote. But that metaphor lets them off the hook too easily. They aren't watching from the sidelines, they're out on the field, 
actively intervening to destroy every conventional energy project they possibly can. And if you're tempted to wash away some of the resulting bad taste with an adult beverage, I'm sorry to report that apparently American craft breweries are in trouble because of a shortage of CO2. But hang on. If it's really true that carbon sequestration is a feasible technology, if you can really produce energy at a profit even after the effort of taking the CO2 out as garbage and just disposing of it somewhere at a dead loss, surely there ought to be a ready trash-to-treasure supply of the stuff for sale to anyone willing to pay to take it off your hands instead. However, actually, it turns out that most industrial CO2 comes from natural sources. And unfortunately, the contamination by benzene at the massive CO2 field at Jackson Doe in Mississippi is proving hard to fix. And what's weird here is that contamination seems to have resulted from trying to get even more of the stuff we have too much of out of the ground, even while we're supposedly sucking it out of the air on an industrial scale. Something here does not add up. Here I'm going to interrupt myself without even banjo music, to tell you a fundraising pitch is coming, to thank everybody who's already supporting the channel, and to ask the rest of you to step up with a small pledge or a big one, monthly if you can manage it, by clicking here, so that we can continue to produce the videos and the newsletter. There's a lot that goes into it, researching, writing the scripts, video production, and we'd also like to expand our presence on other social networks. That is a big part of getting the message out these days. And by the way, for those of you who've been wondering, yes, we are on Rumble as Climate DN. But there's a lot of other places we need to be. That takes time and effort, and time and effort take money. So again, click here. $3 a month, $5 a month, more if you can afford it, and we'll keep bringing sanity to the climate debate across platforms. And now, back to the show. Now, in this week's newsletter, we also offer more proof that when people say things you don't agree with and do things you don't agree with, they probably think things you don't agree with. In this case, in the form of the newsletter North American Wind Power saying, hey, it's all coming together, quote, value of wind energy far exceeds costs, end quote, and also, quote, EIA, renewables will comprise 22% of electricity generation in 2022, end quote. And the Inflation Reduction Act is the best, and so on, so pay no attention to your power bill. In the newsletter, we also note skeptically the giant strides made by the pseudoscience of attribution studies in the world of journalism. In this case, Canary Media alerts us that, quote, new research shows Western Europe is seeing a three to fourfold increase in heat waves compared to anywhere else in the northern mid-latitudes, and none of this would be possible without climate change, end quote. None of it. Never a heat wave until climate changed. From what to what? And why not elsewhere in those mid-latitudes. But Canary Media goes on to interview an expert, quote, A lot of meteorologists and climate watchers couldn't quite believe it was happening, including Axios's Andrew Friedman, quote, A high of 104 degrees has always been this limit that no meteorologist ever thought would be crossed in their lifetime in the UK, end quote, says Friedman, end quote. No meteorologist ever thought? Did he ask them all? And in case you're wondering about his expertise, he's, quote, a climate and energy reporter at Axios, end quote. Also a meteorologist, surely? No. In fact, he has a BA in political science, a master's in climate and society, and a mauled in international environment and resource policy, international negotiations, and conflict resolution from the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Mauled being a Master of Arts in Law and Diplomacy, which is apparently only available from the Fletcher School. 
Now, here Cliff Mass begs to differ. He puts forward the, quote, golden rule of climate extremes, end quote, that, quote, the more extreme a climate or weather record is, the greater the contribution of natural variability and the smaller the contribution of human-caused global warming, end quote. Yeah, okay, Mass doesn't have a mauled. He's just, quote, an American professor of atmospheric sciences at the University of Washington. His research focuses on numerical weather modeling and prediction, the role of topography in the evolution of weather systems, regional climate modeling, and the weather of the Pacific Northwest. He's a fellow of the American Meteorological Society, past president of the Puget Sound American Meteorological Society chapter, and past chair of the College of the Environment College Council. So on that flimsy professional basis, he notes that, quote, major heat waves periodically hit Europe, end quote, including in 2003 and 1976. And I want to be clear here, Mass is no denier. He does think some of the recent warming is human-caused, but he doesn't believe in this nonsense about the extremes that we never saw before, except when we did, being 100% on us. In the newsletter, we also note that The Telegraph, whose views on global warming are somewhat mixed, throws further light, though not water, on the European drought situation with a story, quote, If you can see me weep, drought hit River Elba reveals hunger stones from 1616, end quote. The point of the story seemed to be that Europe's drought was reaching unprecedented levels or might do so soon, but the fact that it was finally as bad as in 1616 rather suggests that nature is variable, though not always in ways you might like. And then the Telegraph tried to scare us with, the quote, the Colosseum could start crumbling, wine grapes wither on the vine, a risotto shortage in the cards, and olive oil may run dry as Italy bakes, end quote, apparently not aware that the Roman warm period, which was warmer than today, featured such things as olive oil, wine grapes, and people building the Colosseum. In the newsletter, we also remind people that we do not believe in conspiracy theories, only to concede that, okay, yeah, when YouTube doesn't just slap a warning on our stuff but attributes it to the United Nations, it doesn't help. Except, of course, that if it were a plot, they wouldn't wave the blue flag that conspicuously. We also continue our Everybody Knows series about climate cliches no one bothers to check, courtesy of an alert viewer who sent a tip to admin at climatedn.com with a link about a very strange CTV news story saying that climate change was devastating Canadian agriculture so badly that the price of farmland had risen too high for young people to be able to enter the business. Now to us, if farmland is rising in value, it's obvious proof that farming is profitable. But the author, equipped with a BA in English and Film and an MA in Journalism, sees, quote, crop-damaging weather patterns of climate change, end quote, whereas the farmer he interviewed saw the price of arable land doubling in recent years. So then we went and checked some Canadian agricultural output data. We've got good numbers going back decades from Statistics Canada, and in this case we looked at annual production of barley, beans, canola, corn, oats, rye, soybeans, sunflower, and wheat, added them all up, and got this chart. As you can see, crop production remained steady at around 60 million metric tons through the 1980s and 1990s, and then when the climate crisis really got going around the year 2000, production shot up to between 80 and 100 million tons. If only every crisis looked like this. And lest you think it was due to farmers fleeing southern Ontario for the melting Arctic ice fields, it turns out that yield per hectare also rose over this interval. So, there you have it. Everybody knows except people who check. Speaking of which, we recently came across a record of precipitation in Germany since 1881. There's this widespread insistence that this summer's extreme dryness is totally unprecedented and it's more proof of man-made global warming, but it just doesn't fit the facts. 
Yes, four of the driest summers happened in the last 30 years, but so did four of the wettest. And overall, there just isn't a pattern. And for more factual perspective, for those who like that sort of thing, we delve into the CO2Science.org archive for a 2014 study that used predictions of worse heat waves to come as a stepping stone to look at the blistering early summer of 1540 in France and Switzerland. And this research discovered also in Austria, Belgium, what's now the Czech Republic, England, Germany, Hungary, Italy, the Netherlands, Poland, Portugal, Romania, Russia, Slovenia, Spain, and Sweden. Seems, yes, they did have heat waves back then too. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I know there's always been weather. <laughs>